0: to this edition of the thoracic surgery resident associations podcast the opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to
1: patient care hello my name is doug lu i'm a thoracic surgery fellow here at stanford i'm with dr mark Barry one of our general thoracic surgeons. Uh, I'll be speaking to him about esophageal cancer and his approach to the workup, operation, and post-operative management. Dr. Barry is an associate professor here at Stanford and has numerous publications, including book chapters, on this topic. Thank you, Dr. Barry, for speaking with me today.
0: Doug, thank you, it's my pleasure.
1: Great, so uh, let's get started with the case scenario. A uh, 65-year-old Caucasian male with a long-standing history of GERD and distant smoking history was referred to you from his primary care physician for dysphagia. For the past six months, he had progressive difficulty swallowing foods. He feels a sensation of food getting stuck in his mid chest, which occurs more, fre- which has been occurring more frequently, and on occasions will cause him to vomit. He's lost about 10 pounds over the last six weeks due to difficulty eating, and he presents to you for further workup and evaluation. So, Dr. Barry, based on this presentation. Uh, what would be your working differential diagnosis, and are there key elements of the history that you would make sure to ask about?
0: Well, Doug, certainly dysphagia and weight loss in an older patient with a history of reflux is esophageal cancer in our field until proven otherwise. Other possible diagnoses include reflux stricture or large hiatal hernia.
1: Great. Um, how would you proceed uh, with your initial workup?
0: The best way to evaluate this clinical situation is via endoscopy which would be diagnostic and also allow obtaining tissue that can direct therapy. Starting with a contrast swallow study is also a reasonable uh, approach, especially if there's gonna be any delays in a patient being able to get the uh, relatively more invasive endoscopy.
1: Okay, great. Um, On endoscopy, let's say uh, there was a mass in the distal esophagus several centimeters above the GE junction. Uh, The biopsy was done and it was consistent with invasive adenocarcinoma. Uh, What would be your next step
0: uh, in terms of staging? Once you confirm the diagnosis of esophageal cancer, the most appropriate next step is to evaluate whether there is metastatic disease. A PET-CT is the most efficient study, as this will allow adequate evaluation of the most common sites of esophageal cancer metastases, including the lung, liver, and bones. In contrast to lung cancer, brain imaging in the absence of symptoms is not routinely necessary, as the incidence of an isolated, asymptomatic brain metastasis due to esophageal cancer is very low. Once it's been established that there are no distant metastases, that's when I would proceed with an endoscopic ultrasound. It's generally best to wait for the PET before doing the EUS, as you can spare patients with metastatic disease the inconvenience of that invasive staging procedure, which ultimately would not even impact their treatment. I see.
1: Um, Are there any patients where uh, perhaps you would not get an EUS on?
0: Uh, Well, my, my preference in my practice is to try to get an EUS on all patients if possible so we can at least have as good a local assessment of the tumor as possible. That said, I don't think it's absolutely necessary in those patients who have a bulky mass on the initial endoscopy and a PET or a CT that shows this extent of local disease without more distant METs. For one thing, waiting to get in the US in those patients can delay starting therapy without providing really any information that would impact their ultimate care or their outcome. For another, those patients almost by definition are going to have at least T3 disease. As we'll discuss, those patients should generally get uh, down the treatment path of induction therapy followed by potential surgery, and the EUS results really shouldn't impact their clinical decision-making. It's also important to remember that EUS has fairly high rates of both overstaging and understaging, depending on the situation. All surgeons must always carefully review EUS reports, as occasionally an EUS report will provide a N assessment, but with the caveat that the study was limited due to tumor obstruction. The US stage in those situations is almost completely unreliable if they suggest an early stage T1 or T2 or no negative tumor.
1: Terrific. Um, Let's say for our patient, um, he got a PET scan which was negative for any distant or normal disease. And he did have an EUS and it showed this to be a T3 tumor. How do you decide uh, which patients get induction therapy prior to surgery? And what is your preferred induction therapy strategy?
0: The history of studies of induction therapy for esophageal cancer is somewhat checkered with inconsistent results, but I do think the literature and the evidence is now very, very strong that a patient with a T3 lesion should get induction treatment. The evidence is mostly provided by the randomized cross trial where patients treated with induction chemo radiation and then surgery for locally advanced esophageal cancer had significantly better survival than patients who went straight to surgery. My current institution favors induction chemo radiation in this setting, and I agree with that strategy. I would prefer that any patient with either a T3 or T4 tumor or a tumor with the presence of nodal disease get treated with induction therapy. That said, it's not entirely clear that radiation is absolutely necessary for esophageal adenocarcinoma in the induction setting. The MAGIC trial was another randomized trial that showed that perioperative chemotherapy improves survival over surgery alone for gastric cancer, and that trial also included patients with distal esophageal and GE junction adenocarcinomas. Therefore, induction chemotherapy alone may also be a good option in this situation. There is currently a randomized trial being conducted that compares chemo radiation and chemotherapy alone in the induction setting, so hopefully in a couple of years we'll have more evidence to guide our treatment process. That's
1: great. So this patient would would get induction therapy with you. Let's say this patient also has uh, significant dysphagia and it has demonstrated weight loss. Um, In in which patients or in which scenarios would you place the feeding tube preoperatively, meaning before the plant esophagectomy, and and in which patients do you put feeding tubes in at the time of esophagectomy?
0: If a patient doesn't already have a feeding tube at the time of surgery, I routinely put in a feeding phageostomy tube. I think there are surgeons that are more selective on when they put in a feeding tube. And that strategy can certainly save some patients the trouble having a feeding tube that they may never really need. Uh, But it also runs the risk that a patient who does poorly, who has complications after esophagectomy, may also have to have an additional procedure to put in a feeding tube when they may already be in the middle of a pretty rocky time. At this point, my bias is that the benefits of a routine feeding tube outweigh the risk. The question of pre op feeding can be a little tricky. Clearly, a patient with weight loss, malnutrition, and dysphagia may have a hard time tolerating all planned therapy, not to mention ultimately a very big surgery. However, patients often will get significant palliation of their dysphagia pretty quickly after starting radiation therapy or even chemotherapy alone, so delaying therapy to get a feeding tube may not be necessary. Whether to place a pre-op feeding tube, therefore, should really be made on a case-by-case basis. A patient that has had a lot of weight loss and looks frail or debilitated with an obstructing or near-obstructing tumor is probably best off getting a feeding tube before getting started with any therapy. If a patient still looks pretty fit and is able to get liquid supplements down, holding off on a feeding tube is pretty reasonable. The question usually comes up as to whether a patient should have a J-tube or a peg or therapy. A J-tube is ultimately better from a surgical perspective as it actually ends up saving some time in the OR if you don't have to put one in when the patient's having a esophagectomy. However, it is a little bit more involved in terms of placement, and it's also not quite as convenient in terms of two feed administration for patients as a peg, where bolus feeds are generally less complicated to use. A peg does have the downside of potentially impacting the gastric conduit when it comes time for surgery, though I remove pegs at the time of esophagectomy in a number of patients without any impact on being able to use the stomach.
1: Great, we'll talk a little bit more about conduits and uh, different options if the stomach uh, is, is not an adequate conduit. Um, in this patient, when when would you restage the patient uh, after induction therapy, and and what findings would preclude him to proceed with surgical resection?
0: I usually restage patients with a PET CT scan within a few weeks of when they finish their induction therapy. The only findings that would absolutely preclude surgery would be the development of metastatic disease. Okay, terrific. Let's
1: uh, talk a little bit about um, the operation. So. Um, Again, let's recap, this is a 65-year-old gentleman, Dysselsoftio adenocarcinoma, biopsy-proven T3N0, who just finished induction therapy and was restaged with no, uh, no, no metastatic disease. What would be your planned surgical approach for this patient, and how do you decide between an Ivory-Lewis versus a McCune versus a transhiatal, and similarly, how do you decide between minimally invasive versus an open technique?
0: I would perform a minimally invasive Ivor Lewis esophagectomy with laparoscopy and thoracoscopy for this patient. That's my operation of choice for an esophageal cancer where the esophagus is clear of any abnormalities from uh, 30 centimeters and above. For tumors that are more proximal or for patients who have, may have extensive Barrett's in the proximal esophagus, I usually carefully consider whether we'll be able to get an adequate margin with the anastomosis placed in the chest. If I have any concerns about getting an adequate margin, I would do a three-field McEwen. I personally would not do a transhiatal in any patient at this point, primarily because of the limitation of getting a complete lymph node dissection in the chest. I think doing a thoracoscopic mobilization and lymph node dissection in the chest does not add a lot of morbidity over a transhiatal procedure. I personally plan for a minimally evasive approach in most patients. The cases where I may not use a minimally evasive approach or where I may have a a low threshold for converting to an open approach, or situations where the patient has had prior extensive hiatal surgery, has or had a bulky mass with significant mass effect on the aorta or airway, or situations where the use of radiation in the chest was somewhat remote.
1: When you do the endoscopy, is there a particular location of the tumor where you would anticipate the need to perform uh, a McEwen esophagectomy? And similarly, what is the highest lesion uh, that you would consider uh, resectable?
0: Well, I would plan for the anastomosis in the neck for all lesions where the extent of the tumor is 25 centimeters or higher. I will often plan a neck anastomosis for tumors between 25 and 30 centimeters, but I will sometimes use an Ivor Lewis approach for tumors in this location if my own assessment on EGD is that we'll be able to get a negative margin by doing a very high chest anastomosis. I don't think there's an absolute location that I'd call unresectable, but I do have concerns about getting a negative margin when the tumor extends to 19 centimeters or higher. If pursuing resection in these cases, I will often at least have one of our head and neck surgery colleagues available to help with the proximal mobilization if it looks like we may end up having to do an anastomosis almost at the level of the pharynx. I see.
1: Now at the start of the operation, do you routinely
0: always do an endoscopy and or a bronchoscopy? I always start every procedure by doing an EGD so I can personally assess tumor location and the response to therapy. And also to ensure that my plans for the anastomosis location are adequate. I will also do a bronchoscopy on any, all patients who had a proximal or mid uh, uh, location prior to therapy. Let see.
1: Um, let's talk a little bit about um, Ivor Lewis esophagectomy and um, maybe you can just highlight some of the key points for each of the major portions of the operation, um, starting with um, the hiatal dissection. What, what are some of the key, key um, things to, to pay attention to during that part of the operation?
0: Yeah, the, the hiatal dissection is usually where I start uh, in the abdomen. The first thing I think you always have to look for is to see if there's a replaced uh, left hepatic uh, artery uh, and if there is, you need to preserve that so you don't run into any hepatic necrosis afterwards. Uh, when uh, doing the hiatal dissection, I think it's pretty important to remember that, that, especially for patients with a distal cancer or G-junction cancer, that there may be lymphatic tissue that has uh, potentially has cancer in this area. So you really, really wanna uh, do a, a good, clean dissection, essentially right off of uh, both Crura and dissect all the soft tissue that goes with the esophagus in this area. Uh, after the hiatal uh, dissection, that's usually when I go to the greater curve. Uh, and, and obviously the key here is to preserve the right gastroepiploic vessel. Um, I usually try to save a little bit of an omental flap when we're mobilizing this part of the, the stomach um, because it's nice to have a little bit of extra soft tissue when you're ultimately in the chest that can be nice to cover up uh, your anastomosis. Uh, I put, like like I said, I put a, a, a genostomy tube in all patients uh, when they're doing an esophagectomy. Uh, and then when we do a minimally invasive uh, Ivor Lewis, we usually will start preparing the conduit uh, in the belly uh, and then finish that later in the chest. I try to make a conduit that's about four centimeters wide, um, so it's we spend a lot of time carefully looking uh, where we're going to start to divide the stomach and to make sure we don't make it either too narrow or too wide.
1: Great. Um, in, in all of these um, different parts of the operations, can you go over some of the uh, common pitfalls that can occur during the operation and what are some of the things that you do uh, to avoid these situations?
0: Well, some of the things that you always have to watch out for in doing the case, is you need to make sure that when you're preparing your conduit that it's going to reach the level you need it to uh, and be able to get a negative margin uh, cancer-wise. Uh, you want to make sure that you keep the conduit healthy, uh, so you really have to make sure you preserve the blood supply that you intend to uh, preserve. Uh, and then you also want to make sure that you don't twist the conduit when you bring it up into the chest. Uh, the, the way I get around uh, or try to avoid these problems is when we're working in the abdomen, we really completely mobilize the stomach and we make sure that we really have freed it up from all attachments where it needs to be freed. And we do usually will go uh, pretty proximal on the stomach in terms of where we uh, uh, mobilize the greater curve. So we're not uh, gonna be held back by being able to pull the the stomach up into the chest, say by by still being uh, connected to the transverse colon. We usually do at least a limited coca maneuver also to give us a little bit of extra length. Uh, Obviously when you're mobilizing the stomach and the chest in in the abdomen, you really want to be careful not to injure the spleen. When you're working in the abdomen and you're getting ready to divide the left gastric artery, it's very, very important to make sure that you mobilize all the lymphatic tissue up into your specimen, so you do as good of a a lymph node resection as possible. Uh, And then when it's time to start doing your conduit, you really need to, to, to look carefully and make sure you're starting it exactly where you need to start it, and you're not gonna make it too thin or too wide.
1: Great, any tips for how to, when getting the conduit from the abdomen up into the chest, any tips on how to make sure it's oriented correctly uh, and, and not, you know, twisted or anything like that?
0: Well, one thing that I try to do in the abdomen is mobilize the esophagus up into the mediastinum, you know, ideally up to the level of the inferior pulmonary vein. And then if you have that much mobilization, what I try to do is put the, uh, the, the uh, lesser curved side of the specimen into the hiatus, and we can verify in the abdomen that we have put it into the chest in the appropriate orientation. That way, when you go in the chest and you get down to the area of the hiatus, as soon as you open up the pleura in that area, you should be looking at the staple line that you started. And then you should be pretty confident that you haven't twisted your your conduit. And if you make sure that you keep that staple line pointed straight at you, then you should be able to avoid that problem.
1: How about a situation where after you've uh mobilized the stomach and created a conduit, it appears dusky. What, what 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 are your options at that point as to how to manage this?
0: Well, that's certainly a very disheartening scenario. Um, again, you know, these are the types of things that you really, really want to try to avoid. So it goes back to when you're mobilizing the stomach in the abdomen to be sure that you really protect the, the right gastrointestinal vessel. Um, it. It can be tough when you're in a situation that the conduit doesn't look that good because sometimes just from the mobilization and just from beating it up surgically, it might look uh, a little dusky, but it's gonna end up being fine. Um, you know, if you really are worried, I think that one thing to do is to delay putting your conduit together and and maybe just either leave the patient uh, disc you know in discontinuity and plan to come back in a day or two to take a look again and make sure that the stomach is really still viable, and then you can do your anastomosis then. If you're really worried, you can just do a spit fistula in the neck and you know plan to come back even longer than a couple of days. Um, I think that in situations where you're worried about the, the conduit, that's a reasonable approach to take, uh, because if you do you know, take the step of putting them back together and then the conduit ultimately goes south, patients can get pretty sick and then that can be a tough situation to get out of. I
1: see. Kind of as a segue um, to, to the next topic would be uh, altern- alternative conduits aside from the stomach. So can you can you discuss uh, s- some of the options and, and what's your preference as to what to use if the stomach is not available?
0: Sure. Uh, you know, fortunately, the stomach is available in, in almost all all cases. You know, the the times where we run into situations where we have to consider an alternative conduit is when someone's had previous extensive hiatal surgery, where the stomach has been really manipulated uh, quite a bit, and you're worried that you're not going to have enough stomach to reach where you need to. Or, or obviously, if someone's had previous gastric surgery and the stomach is no longer uh, a viable uh, uh, option. I think the other time you actually have to think about another conduit is if someone's a diabetic with really severe gastroparesis uh, because taking a stomach that already doesn't work well and uh, and pulling it up into the chest can can mean that they might have some problems trying to swallow after they full, ultimately recover um, the, you know the options when you don't have the stomach are to either use colon or to use small intestine. I think what people generally use are the uh, in terms of an alternative conduit, or the the conduits that they're used to, or or where, which conduit their institution is is used to using. Uh, my prer- current preference uh, is to do uh, small intestine conduit, and we usually get our plastic surgeons to help mobilize and then also to supercharge it by connecting it to some blood vessels in the neck.
1: I see, great. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, post-operative management and then uh, follow-up. Um, When do you obtain a swallow study uh, in these patients, and do you get one in every patient that you operate on? Uh,
0: My practice has kind of evolved over time. Uh, Initially, I favored sending everyone home on two feeds for two to three weeks and then just getting a swallow as an outpatient before starting anything significant by mouth. That's a pretty conservative therapy, but it does generally minimize the number of patients who are going to have a complicated leak. Unfortunately, most patients Really don't want to wait that long to be able to eat, so I'll now consider getting a swallow or anywhere between five and seven days post-op, depending on how patients look, uh, and if they're doing well with no clinical evidence of a leak. If you
1: obtain a swallow study and a leak is discovered, um, can you talk a little bit about your approach in
0: terms of the management? Sure. I think when you have a leak, you know obviously the first thing you want to uh, figure out is is it a small leak, is it a big leak, and then is the leak making the patient sick? Um, If a patient has a leak and they're appearing sick at all, then you at the least need to do a CT scan and make sure you don't have any undrained collections that you need to go and, and chase after. Fortunately, most patients that have a leak, it generally is a somewhat benign situation For me, if I have a patient who has a small leak on a swallow study that's well-drained by whatever drain is in place, and they're not sick and they have no undrained collections, I'll usually just try to give those patients a couple weeks uh, and then do another swallow study and see how things go. If it looks like a a pretty big leak and it's a high-volume leak where the the drainage is pretty significant, those are the patients that I'll consider putting a stent in post-op. And then I think if you've got a situation where there's a leak and patients are really, really sick, that's when you need to really take a good look at your conduit, make sure that it's really still viable, and you're not in a situation where you need to just divert them to be able to get out of a potentially disastrous situation. I see.
1: Well, let's say for our patient that we've been talking about, fortunately he does very well post-op. He comes to see you uh, in your office for follow-up. And uh, his pathology shows uh, the tumor had a partial response to an induction therapy, and margins are all negative, uh, and he had four out of 30 positive lymph nodes in the specimen. In what situations uh, would you recommend
0: adjuvant therapy? Well, th- th- this scenario uh, can be a difficult decision, and this is something that I almost always make in conjunction with the patient's medical oncologist. Um, you know, the, the first thing, from a surgical standpoint, is really to have made sure that the patient did okay with surgery without any major complications because if the patients had a rocky surgical course most of the time you're not even going to have the option to give them chemotherapy they're either not going to be ready for it or they're not going to tolerate it or by the time they are ready for it it's kind of past the window where it would be helpful Um, i think the things that you want to consider when you're thinking about adjuvant therapy is whether that was the plan all along because there are some chemotherapy regimens where uh, it's the you know the the plan is to give some pre-op and then some post-op. If that's the case, then you really need to try to get the patient to the point where they can get their adjuvant chemo. If it wasn't planned to get adjuvant chemo, I think the things you want to look at is to see if the induction chemo had an effect pathologically. If it did look like it had a significant effect and the patient has done okay those are patients that I would usually encourage to go back to their oncologist and consider getting a little bit more chemo.
1: Great. Um, how frequently do you follow these patients and for what duration ultimately do you, do you see them for in terms of surveillance?
0: Well, soft tissue cancer patients need at least five years of surveillance just from a cancer perspective, but the surveillance can be done by their surgeon, by their medical oncologist, or by their radiation oncologist. In terms of long-term follow-up, I usually leave that up to whichever provider would be the most convenient for the patients. But I do follow all our surgical patients for at least a year, because that gives us a pretty long period of time to assess whether they're having any kind of mechanical complication from the surgery, whether it's a stricture, whether it could be a hernia from where their incisions were, uh, whether they're having any entheum problems or whether having any kind of dumping problems.
1: So I see, so let let's say theoretically for this patient, um, he did well for several months, and at, at a three-month post-op visit, he comes to you uh, to your office complaining of dysphagia. Uh, what's your approach in evaluating and, and ultimately treating uh, his symptoms?
0: Well, in, in that time period, dysphagia almost always occurs due to a stricture, delayed gastric emptying, or just from gastric dysmotility. The patient's history will use will, will, will sometimes point relatively clearly towards the etiology, and proceeding to an EGD to dilate either the stricture or the pylorus is reasonable in those situations. If the history is not too clear, getting a swallow before going to the EGD or starting a promotility agent is a reasonable thing to do. Great.
1: Well, that's great. Um, that's very comprehensive. Thank you, uh, Dr. Berry, for your time and your knowledge on, the, on this topic, and uh, we all appreciate it.
0: No problem, Doug. Thank you.